excited today um, to be starting a brand new sermon series. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter. And I've been thinking over the last couple weeks about just the, the state of our country and the situation of the church that we find ourselves in in this, in this point in time. And uh, you've heard it said um, from the pulpit that we increasingly, increasingly live in a post-Christian culture. And what that means, uh, the historians of Christianity and religion noted that for many years in the West, we lived in what they called Christendom. And Christendom was basically a place where Christian values and teaching were widely accepted, um, were seen as the basis of many of our institutions. And to be a Christian in a Christian culture, in a Christendom culture, it was advantageous. There would, there would be a good thing. If you say you go to church, you're a part of a church, uh, that would be seen as a positive thing. But we increasingly are living in a post-Christian culture where, uh, unfortunately, identification with a church, especially an evangelical gospel-believing church, right, might not be socially advantage, uh, advantageous. It, it could even be detrimental. It could be, you know, so if you're exploring Christianity and you're here today, you know, unfortunately, you are uh, coming into a Christian environment in which the popularity of the church is actually on a, on a decline rather than an incline. And so uh, you need to know, I, I suppose, what you're getting yourself into. For those of you who are members of the church and you've been followers of Jesus and you're faithful in living that out, right, you may have found uh, in social circles or in work environments where holding to those Christian values, especially on things like gender and sexuality, uh, in teaching settings, in work settings, uh, otherwise being faithful to Christian ethics and morality, right, this could get you into a little bit of trouble in certain settings. And so we find ourselves increasingly uh, as the church is perhaps unpopular uh, in the world's eyes, and I only see this increasing as time goes by. And so for those of us who are seeking to be Christians and to be a faithful follower of Jesus in school, in work, wherever you might be, we need to count the cost. Uh, we need to think about the implications of this and potential suffering that might come to us uh, as a result of authentically following Jesus. But in this way... <clears throat> The good news is that we, our situation is actually not all that different from the situation that Peter spoke to when he wrote this letter, which is part of the reason um, we want to take the next couple of weeks and go through First Peter very carefully because he addressed uh, a very similar situation. So today's message... <clears throat> It's going to be a little bit unusual in that this is primarily introductory. I'm only covering the first two verses today, but I'm going to set the stage for what is to come, and hopefully, you know, you'll consider this to be an appetizer of the, of the coming messages. Uh, we're going to be covering various themes that are going to be previewed today. First Peter was not written to a primarily Christian world. It was what we would call perhaps a pagan world. It was a world that was uh, permeated in every aspect of society by polytheism, by just an abundance of all kinds of different gods, as well as a very strong imperial uh, religious system, an uh, imperial cult. Uh, the emperor was worshipped, and you could find temples throughout the Roman Empire where, uh, re where religion and state were heavily, heavily intertwined. Uh, this was a, a, a world with, that was rampant, just absolutely rampant with immorality. If you are offended by an R-rated movie today, the, the Romans would have laughed at you. They would have thought that was just really... Uh, insignificant compared to the kind of debauchery and the, the partying and the, the kind of things that were prevalent and common uh, in the first century in the Roman Empire. So it was a world filled with corruption, and if you became a Christian in that context, 
that was a very, very big deal. By all appearances, as a believer, you may have looked like everybody else and dressed the same, but people knew right away that if you're a believer in that day and time, there is something very, very different about you, and that was a difference that oftentimes was not appreciated. Uh, Christians aggravated their non-Christian neighbors. They were frust uh, frustrating. I have a picture here of um, early, one of the earliest examples of uh, graffiti. Um, this is from Rome. I think they believe that this, is uh, this was uh, about 200 AD. And it says, here is Alexamenos worshiping his God. And you can see a boy on the left and uh, a kind of very crude depiction of Jesus. This is on display in the museum uh, if you go to Rome. And Jesus has the head of a donkey. And so uh, this is just an example of, of people mocking Christians for their, you know, their foolish God who, who died on a cross. Christians were found irritating to people of that day and time because they refused to go along with a lot of the practices that were common in the first century. They, they were called atheists because they didn't believe in all the different gods. But the fact is, Christians are not atheists. They just only believe in one god. But, but uh, that was very off-putting to their Roman and uh, Greek neighbors. They were guilty of blurring the lines of the social hierarchy. Uh, the social hierarchy in the ancient time was very stratified, and you had your people at the bottom and the middle and the top, and these sides did not mix. But then within Christian churches, you have everybody calling each other brother and sister, and you have people acting like these social hierarchies are not significant, and we can all be friends and all be equals in Christ. This was highly offensive, and you can understand that for people who really valued a hierarchy, seeing this kind of equality in the church made you feel very uncomfortable and very threatened with your position. Of course, the, the moral purity of the Christians was irritating and aggravating. The fact that they're constantly going to church and they're constantly going to worship meetings and praying and they're, they're feasting on the blood and body of Christ. These things were all, you know, just shocking and weird and off-putting to the people of the ancient time. So what we need to understand about First Peter is that it was written to people prior to any kind of official state persecution. Uh, if you know anything about the, the, the history of the Roman Empire, you would know that subsequent emperors later on, like Diocletian, um, that, that there was official state persecution. It was government-sanctioned rules and policies explicitly um, persecuting Christians. But that's not what, this, that's not what Peter's addressing, because Peter's before all that. So the persecution that Peter's addressing is social stigma, it's the kind of isolation that comes in the marginalization that came from the Christians just being Christians. And it was not just from Gentiles, but it was also from uh, zealous Jews who did not agree with Christ. So the church of the, of the New Testament was being persecuted both by the, the religious side and also by the worldly side. So you would think that in a situation uh, in which, you know, Christians are coming under persecution, experiencing this kind of hardship, that if Peter was going to write a letter to these people, he would lament it. And he would say, my goodness, friends, oh, yeah, what a difficult situation we find ourselves in. And my, my goodness, how hard it is to be a Christian in today's day and age. But that is not his approach at all. And that is what is so beautiful and profound about, about Peter, is that instead of lamenting the situation, he actually sees that current context as something that uh, has incredible, incredible opportunity. Rather than lamenting it, he encourages them to look for the positives. Isn't that mind-blowing? Right? They're experiencing persecution. He says, yeah, don't get angry. Don't fight back. I want you to change the way you're thinking about this situation. I want you to realize a couple things. 
right? The Christians of that time were being marginalized. Marginalization, it, we can think about it in terms of your voice being diminished, your perspective not respected, your worth not being acknowledged, your presence being virtually invisible. And yet for Peter, there is profound power that is at work in the church when instead of retaliating and instead of fighting back and instead of trying to take power and embrace power, rather you look at your situation through new, a new lens. Peter said, this marginalization that you're experiencing is a test. Suffering is a test. I want you to think about it as something that God is using to purify you. I want you to, to think about the suffering that you're experiencing in the, world, in the world as an honor and even as a privilege. One of the most incredible things about the apostles in the early church was that when they suffered and when they were in prison, they celebrated and they said, can you believe that God has considered us worthy to suffer for the gospel? This is a radically, radically different perspective on suffering and persecution than I think what we find in uh, some religious circles today. He said, you can have hope in, even in the midst of unjust suffering and be a witness to the gospel by how you respond when people persecute you, when people marginalize you. Do you fight back or do you suffer while holding on to faithfulness, holding on to authentically following Christ? So I, I realize, you know, for a message like this, th this is not a popular message. This is not an easy message. It is the message from Scripture, is the message that I believe that we need to consider uh, as the church is moving into what could potentially be a very difficult uh, season for us uh, in the future, and even now as well. So as I mentioned, today, today's message is a little bit different in that I'm going to be handing, handling a couple introductory matters. It's kind of setting the stage. I'm not going to do this every, every, uh, every Sunday, so I apologize if I, if I seem more like a professor today than a pastor and uh, try to set the stage with some introductory matters. First of all, the authorship. Who is the author of 1 Peter? Any guesses? Um, well, the, 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 the scripture says that it's Peter. Uh, this is one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He was a fisherman from Galilee. However, if you read in the commentaries, you'll immediately realize that the question of Petrine authorship is questioned. And some people say, well, I know it says Peter, but it, it can't have been the case that Peter actually wrote it for a couple reasons. First of all, um, the language of 1 Peter does seem in many respects to be very similar to Paul. So if you read it, you know, a lot of people think, you know, this looks a lot more like Paul than it does Peter. There's no way that Peter could write it. But it does beg the question, if somebody was going to write a pseudonymous uh, letter, right, if somebody other than Peter was going to write this letter but then attribute it to an apostle and make it sound like Paul, then why wouldn't they just say this letter was from Paul, right? That doesn't really make sense. Uh, Paul was, you know, well-respected in the early co uh, community or church community. So if you were going to write a letter mimicking somebody uh, popular, you could have just said it was Paul, but it's not. It's attributed to Peter. The other um, thing that people will know, and um, I'm not a serious enough Greek scholar to recognize this. I can, with a dic dictionary, go back and look at the Greek. But what is said about First Peter, and if you've studied it, you know that the Greek is very, very high quality. Uh, so what people would say was Peter was a fisherman from Galilee. He's poor. He's uneducated. There's nobody, there, there's no way that this Galilean fisherman could have been able to writ, uh, write a letter in such wonderful uh, prose uh, the way we have in First Peter. But uh, that suggests that somebody like Peter would not have been able to receive a formal education. The fact of the matter is that even Galileans, 
were, were, were very educated in many respects, spoke multiple languages, and, and there's no reason for us to think that uh, Peter couldn't have written this, especially if he had some help. I'll mention that in a second. Um, but but it, it does seem, you know, there, there's no... I'll say this, there's nobody from uh, ancient church history that ever questioned whether or not 1 Peter was actually written by Peter. There, there's no credible sources that say, oh, well, you know, we got this letter, uh, it says Peter, but we think it might be from somebody else. There's, just, there's no ancient witness that supports that. So, uh, so based on what it says and, and uh, what has been received in church tradition, I think we're on pretty safe grounds to assume that this was, in fact, Peter. How do we explain the very high level of Greek prose? Well, if you look a little bit later on in chapter 5, verse 12, which I believe I have on the screen, this is what it says, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring this, the true grace of God, stand firm in it. So right there in the text, in verse 12, we have there an admission that there was somebody else that was, uh, that was involved in the process of creating this letter. So if Peter himself didn't write it, what could have happened is that uh, Sylvanus, who could have been an educated Greek person, maybe took all the theology and all the teaching from Peter, or, or maybe even Peter kind of, you know, spoke it out loud and Sylvanus, who was educated, uh, wrote it down for us. So that would very easily explain why we have the high quality of Greek that we have. So uh, my perspective, and I, I think the perspective of the church, that First Peter is in fact written by Peter, one of the 12 disciples. And so if we go with Petrine authorship, then we can also, in terms of the date, Put it very early, Peter is thought to have died around 65 AD, according to church tradition. So if, if it was written by Peter towards the end of his life, then a possible date would be between 62 and 64 AD. Any questions, class? <laughs> <laughs> Who was it written to? Uh, so take a look at verse 1. Uh, to, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So uh, this is written to Christians, obviously, um, and I do believe that we have a map so that you can see this is western, what, what is modern-day kind of northwestern Turkey. Back then it was, it was called Asia Minor. And First uh, Peter, what is interesting about First Peter, as we read it, you'll see, is that it was written to Gentile Christians. Which is interesting because, you know, if you read scripture, Paul says, you know, I'm the apostle to the, to the Greeks. Peter is the apostle to the Jews. And so we would expect that the letters of Paul are written primarily to Gentiles, while the letters of Peter would be written primarily to Jews. But it becomes very clear that the, the people that Peter is writing to in this letter are actually Gentile Christians. So these are converts to Christianity that have come from Greek backgrounds. They're not from Jewish backgrounds. Um, and we'll, we'll talk more about that as we, as we get through the letter. So, so that's a little bit kind of about the, the overview. There's a lot of different themes. I'm not going to go into the different themes that, um, that, that, that are going to be foreshadowed in the letter, but we will see a little bit in verses four, 1 and 2 where Peter is addressing his, the congregation. And so as we're going through this, uh, just verses 1 and 2, a couple of things for us to think about in terms of Christian identity, in terms of as people who in today's day and age claim to follow Jesus, are walking the path of Jesus, have been invited to, to be a part of the body of Christ, who are we? Right? What is true about the followers of Christ? So, so going back again to, the, to verse 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, 
Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So a couple words jump out at us immediately in the very beginning when he addresses these Christians as elect exiles. And then not only does he say you're elect exiles, but then getting into verse 2, he says that they are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, I'm not going to get into a whole debate about predestination here. Um, you know, those of you who know me, know I come from a Reformed background. I would lo love nothing more than to get into a big debate with you about predestination, but I'm not going to do that here. And uh, all I want to say is that it's pretty clear that when Paul address when Peter addresses them, he says, you are elect, and it's according According to the foreknowledge of God, which means, by the way, that, that as he's writing to these people, they're experiencing suffering and persecution. He says, you're chosen. You are God's chosen people, that God has intentionally picked you and chosen you to be a part of this community, and that everything that you're experiencing and going through is not an accident, right? God is not a God who makes accidents, so part of one of the themes that comes through in Peter is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is God's power. God, I almost think about it sometimes like God's a master chess player. And you can be a really talented chess player, but if you come up against a master, you may move your pieces around and think that you're winning, but the master chess player sees the whole board, and you cannot outsmart the master chess player. The master chess player is going to win every time. He knows his plan. He knows the board. There's nothing that you can do to the will of God. So he calls them elect, chosen, and he wants them to know that in the midst of the suffering that they're experiencing, when life seems chaotic, or perhaps you've experienced some sort of marginalization or persecution or suffering as a result of your faith, it is not an accident, but it is part of God's sovereign plan. And you, my friends, were chosen for it. You were appointed for it. God chose you with this, this divine foreknowledge before the, even the creation of the world. He has a plan for your life. And that it's really an astonishing to think, thing to think about, to contemplate that everything that is happening in your life is not an accident, but it's part of God's plan. An unfolding of his purpose in your life and in my life. Which means that part of being called into the family of God is that every single one of us ought to have a deep, profound sense of destiny. That your life is not random. Your suffering is not random. The experiences you are having, they're not an accident. But that your life is part of a larger work of God. And he's using you and your life as a part of his plan in the world. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that, that you are on a soccer team, and let's say that there's a couple different so uh, goalkeepers in your soccer team, and you have a match coming up against a really, really tough opponent. And let's say that your coach pulls you aside and says, listen, we're, we're going up a team that is very good, they're very talented. We're going to get hammered by this team. But we have three keepers, and I'm choosing you. I'm choosing you. And I know that you're going to do great, and I know that no matter how bad it feels, no matter how hard we get hit, you're the man for the job or the woman for the job. You're the keeper I'm choosing. So imagine, okay, you're like, okay, coach has chosen me. Good, I'm going to get in there. I'm going to be keeper today. Uh, but you're a little nervous because you know that this team that you're going up against is really tough. It's going to be a brutal game. And so let's say, you know, you're halfway through and you come back and you guys are you're down by two. 
and, and you've been hammered the whole time and their offense is just so strong and, and you're the goalkeeper and you let two of those goals slip by you so you feel terrible because, you know, you feel like you're not, you're not holding your weight and the, the, the team is going to lose before, you know, is going to lose because of you. And so you go up to the coach and say, coach, this for, I know it doesn't quite work like this. Usually there's just one main keeper, but play along with me for the sake of the, the metaphor, okay? So you go up to the coach and say, coach, I, I really blew it. I've let two in. You, you got to switch me out. Put, put this other person in there because I, I don't think we're going to win if I stay. And your coach pulls you aside and says, listen, it's not an accident I chose you. I knew we were going to get hammered, but I know how this game ends. And if you stay with me, I believe in you. I believe in you. You get out there. You do the best you can. And we are going to win this match. I've chosen you. And I think that's kind of how it is with us. God is saying, I know how this story ends. Are you getting hammered by life, by persecution, by whatever it is? You think, I'm not the person for the job. And God's saying, no, I've chosen you. And I have a plan for you. And so that, that's this incredible, incredible idea that is meant to encourage the Christians in the first century, and I believe meant to encourage us today that, that we are chosen. Secondly, he says that, that we're exiles. We're, 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 we're chosen exiles. To be an exile usually means, it's usually a very negative thing, right? To be an exile means that you've had to flee your country, for some, your home country for some reason, that you now live in a land which is not historically your own. So exiles are known as being, as being foreigners, as being visitors, and they're not seen as being permanent residents in the place that they are. Exiles in our world, unfortunately, have a very, very tough time. It is very, very hard to, to be an exile. But Paul, or Peter, I'm sorry, takes this idea of something that is usually has a negative connotation and he spins it in a positive way. And he uses it as, as a metaphor for what it means to be a believer. So to be a believer in Paul and Peter's use of the word is to be an exile, somebody who is here, but who doesn't ultimately belong here. It's somebody who finds themselves in Bergen County, in Passaic County, maybe even Rockland County, wherever you live. And you maybe you have a home there and you live there and you grew up there. But this idea of being a Christian exile means that you might live here, but you don't belong here. And that there's something about you that is foreign. There's something about you that is not quite comfortable here, which I think speaks challengingly to us uh, as people living in the suburbs because it's all about the comfort. Right? It's all about getting set up and having the nice house and having the nice yard. And, and, and maybe you, know, you, you spent your 20s and 30s really hitting the pavement hard, but now you're getting into your 40s and 50s and you want to scale back a little bit. You want to relax. You want to be comfortable. You want to put down roots. But Peter says, no, 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 no. You are exiles here. Right? You, you don't belong here. So I think on a practical level, what does this mean? It means that, that we, we can't get too comfortable here. You can't get too comfortable here. There's got, you got to cultivate a sense in yourself that this is not your home, but you belong elsewhere. That your values and your priorities as a believer are much more aligned with a foreign country, and that foreign country is the kingdom of heaven. And this kingdom citizenship, this Peter's going to talk a lot about this, right? We belong to the kingdom of heaven, and so that makes us a little different. It makes us a little bit of an outsider. Um, many of you know, of course, that I grew up in Japan. Um, after I graduated from high school, I moved to the States. We visited Japan. I never moved back. People have often asked me, Ben, you know, you grew up in Japan. How come you didn't stay there? 
I don't really know how to answer that question other than to say that, you know, even growing up there and very much embracing aspects of the culture that I think a part of me was, a part of my heart was, was always back here and, and knew that Japan was someplace that we were temporarily, but I wasn't going to stay there. And certainly when we, when we were in Japan, even though we had spent most of our lives growing up there, there was a part of us that longed for certain things from the United States. So if people would ever visit us and they would say, you know, we're coming from the States, we know there's certain things you can't get in Japan, what would you like? And uh, we would say, please get us pepperoni. Uh, pepperoni was, <laughs> was not available in Japan. And so when people would come and they would pull these big, big honking pepperonis out of the... Uh, out of their suitcase, that made us pretty happy. You know, they, they, you could buy pepperoni on pizza in Japan, but in like the 80s and 90s, if you got pepperoni, it was really more like salami. It wasn't the real thing. So, you know, and, it, and if you're an immigrant, you know, like, oh, yeah, America's great, but I'm sure there's certain things about whatever country you came from that you miss, right? And there's a part of your heart that is still in South America or in, you know, uh, Eastern Europe or, or, or wherever, and there's certain things that you, you can't quite get back but you long for it, and so it, you feel like an outsider sometimes. That's part of being a third culture kid is no, no, no matter where you are, you're, you're pretty much an outsider. But I, I, friends, I think that is a beautiful way to think about what it means to believe, be a believer because you're, you don't belong here. You belong to Christ, and that makes you different. That makes you different, and so we ought not to be too comfortable here. Our values and our desires ought to be more guided, not by the priorities of the world, but by the priorities of the kingdom. And Jesus is teaching. So that brings us to, to verse number two then. Uh, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. I love that word sanctification. I, uh, it's one of these Christianese words, right? You hear people drop that word sanctification as if everybody knows what we're, we're talking about. But, it, you know, it's one of these words we use. It sounds nice, but oftentimes we, we really don't have any idea what sanctification really means. So what is sanctification? We're, we're called into the sanctification of the Spirit. According to a theological dictionary of the Bible, sanctification has to do with holiness, well, that's not very helpful either, right? Because holiness is another one of those Christianese words. What in the world is holiness? Well, holiness has to do with, with being separate. Holiness has to do with utter otherness, total separation. So we could define sanctification as becoming more and more increasingly separated from what is secular and sinful, separate but also set apart. So holiness has to do with who you are, how you are, your worth and your value as a person, your identity. That's holiness. But there's also holiness of purpose. And what that means is that as somebody who is separate, as somebody who is called apart and is other, that, that there is a purpose that is connected with that otherness. You are called out of what is common, out, out of what is of the world, and into a life purpose that is sacred, a sacredness of purpose. I learned about this the hard way at home because we have various kinds of towels at our home, and I have come to learn the hard way that not all towels are to be used for similar purposes. So we have different kinds of, the women are laughing. Uh, the, we have different, different bath towels. Bath towels are sacred. I learned this morning that not all bath towels, we actually have gradations of bath towels, and we have special bath towels that are be, to be used for guests and for perhaps the master suite, and we have other lesser towels that are used for other purposes. And then we have 
uh, kitchen cloths, and we have washcloths, and we have dish rags. And, and uh, you know, so if there is a mess on the floor in the kitchen, you, you do not use a bath towel to clean up that mess. That will uh, annoy somebody in my household. I won't say who. So my kids and I, we've had to learn, uh, you know, had to realize that we have to, there, there's a sacredness to certain things, but with this sacredness comes a sacredness of purpose. And Peter is using this idea, and he's going to come back to it over and over, that, that the people of God are sacred, and they're holy, they're separate. And it's all based, of course, in the holiness of God. Throughout Scripture, the picture of God is that God is a holy God. When we say God is a holy God, what we mean is there is nothing like our God. There are no other gods that even come close to to having God's majesty and His power. He is supreme. He is completely, completely different from anything else that exists in all of creation. That's God. He's holy. And so what the, the, the Scripture says over and over, Leviticus 11, 44, 45, God is holy, therefore you be holy. Right? God is holy. God is otherworldly. He's sacred. He's set apart. And so God invites his people also to be set apart and to be, to be different. And there's the rub, I suppose, that if we want to think about this on a really practical level. That is the question of the lives of believers. Are they, in fact, different from the lives of people uh, in the world? Is there something that marks you, your behavior, your attitude, that when folks see your life, they would say, you know what, there's something about this person. I don't like him. I don't like her. They annoy me. But I can see that there's something about that person that is really, really different. That reflects the holiness of God. Pastoring in the city, this was maybe 15 years ago, we were doing a lot of evangelism outreach, and somebody, somebody, somebody said the most devastating thing to me. Um, we had been connecting with this person, inviting him to participate in the church's activities. He was getting to know people, and he said to me, after having hung out with us for a couple weeks, he said, you know, there's a problem here, and that's that all you Christians and all you people that I've been hanging out with, you're, you're no different from my other friends. And, and friends, I, I think that's like the worst thing somebody could say as a critique to the church, that there's nothing different about you. Because if we really are truly following a holy God that will yield holiness, separateness, otherness in our lives. Another way of saying this is that if you're a follower of Jesus, there ought to be something about your life that the regular person finds just to be a little strange, a little bit can't quite make sense of it. There's a guy in our church, I won't say who, because I know I would embarrass him terribly, and he's very humble, but he spends his Saturdays going to Patterson and, and giving out clothing and uh, donations, food, um, and uh, hygiene kits to the homeless of Patterson. He's not involved with any organization. He doesn't do it for any credit. He just does it because he feels compelled, because God has sent him, sent him there to do that. It's his personal mission. You know, at Grace Church, we talk about gather, grow, give, and go. I find that to be weird. You give up your Saturday morning. You could be home with, you know, you worked all week. You could be home with your wife and kids. And yet you want to do what at 8 o'clock on Saturday morning? You want to go to, to downtown Patterson by the train station and sit in the freezing cold and give away coats and food and so forth? Yeah, it's weird on the one hand, but that's holiness in action. There's something about it. You, you can't quite make sense about it, but it points us again to that foreign country, that heavenly country. And I believe that Peter would say there's every one of us that there ought to be something about every one of us that is a little bit like that, a little bit weird, a little bit 
holy, a little bit otherworldly. And finally, uh, we're called, it says, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Christ Jesus and for sprinkling with His blood. The calling is to be different, but what is our different our difference look like? If we were going to try to say, okay, different, but different how? What does that difference look like? Peter would say, obedience, the difference is the obedience to Christ. And I have a couple different um, examples of the, of the teachings of Christ, that are just a sampling of the types of things that Jesus commanded. And, and, and as believers who are in a, in a discipleship path where God is teaching us more and more through Christ, right, what this new life looks like, the invitation to follow Jesus, right? Discipleship is about going back to the gospel, going back to say, you know, what did Jesus actually command? How are we living these things out? He said things like, let your yes be yes and your no be no. He said, turn the other cheek. He said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray in secret. Give in secret. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. He said, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, not treasure on earth. He said, do not be anxious about anything. He said, pick up your cross and follow me. He said, die to yourself so that you can come alive to God. Live each day, one day at a time. He said, don't judge. He said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He said, love one another as I have loved you. As we are embracing the call of Jesus to be different, to be holy, to be set apart, right? The commands of Jesus more and more so reflect our lives. We put these things into practice. He says, obey. Obey has kind of a negative ring to it. How I think about it is Jesus says, I've given you this teaching. Put it into action. Put it into practice. If you hold on to these things, but you don't actually do them, your life doesn't look any different. As we reflect on the teachings of Jesus, there's three things that are immediately obvious. Number one, the teachings of Jesus are so hard that it is not possible to do them without having a full radical transformation, a spiritual experience of being born again by the Spirit of God and being saved through the blood of Christ. He sets the standards so high for how we are to live and how we are to be in the world. It is not possible to do these things on your own steam. It requires a conversion, being born again into the family of God. It's the only way it's possible to live out these things. The second thing we realize right away when we look at the teachings of Jesus is how few people actually live them out. There's so many people who call themselves Christians and go to church, but their lives simply do not reflect these things because they're hard. G.K. Chesterton, famous British preacher, he said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. But the third thing we realized when we examine the teachings of Jesus, we actually read the New Testament and see what he taught, was that if the world and if the church actually began to live these things out and to practice them in any kind of authentic and faithful way, we would practically change the world overnight. The teachings of Jesus are so radical and they're so different, and they're so profound that if the church were to truly commit itself to embracing these things, being different and living them out, we could change the country in a generation. We would see a radical, radical shift. Because if people actually started doing these things, loving their enemies and not judging, praying for those who persecute you, if we actually started doing these things, it would be such a profound witness to the gospel and to the glory of God. It would change the world. It would radically change the world. The church, I think, wants a Savior who saves us 
But we oftentimes separate that from discipleship. We want to be saved. We want to go to heaven. But we want that without the call to discipleship, the call to actively embarking on this real uh, journey of living the teachings of Jesus out in a way that would show the love of God to the world in very, very practical ways. And so Peter writes to the Christians in Asia Minor, and I believe to us as well, and it speaks to us today a word encouraging us that we were sanctified for obedience. We were sanctified by the blood of Christ. I'm going to talk about the blood of Christ in a second. We were sanctified in order to be able to live out the teachings of Jesus that would be different and that would point the world to the glory of Christ. If the church wants Jesus' salvation but doesn't want to embrace Jesus' teaching, it will be a Christian in name only but will not have any impact in the world. The only church, the only church that will have a missional impact in the world is the church that knows Christ as Savior, but that also knows Christ as Lord and is willing to embrace and embody and live out the teachings of Christ. Finally, he says that you were called, what does it say in verse 2, looking back again, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Christ Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, that is a weird picture, isn't it? Sprinkling with blood, uh, that seems very strange, almost, almost kind of gross. What in the world is Peter talking about here when he talks about you're, you're, you're called for sprinkling with blood? Well, Peter is borrowing a metaphor from the Old Testament. The sprinkling of blood was used very commonly in ancient Israel, and it had to do with purification and consecration. The blood of sacrifices was used, and it was oftentimes sprinkled on altars uh, in order to purify the altar. The priests, before they could um, function as priests, would have to have the blood of the sacrifices put on their earlobes or sprinkled on their, on their robes. So the sprinkling of blood symbolizes purification before the eyes of God. But even beyond that, the sprinkling with blood was used in order to consecrate the people of Israel uh, when they had made a covenant with God. They were entering into an agreement with God, signing off on the commands, and God would sprinkle blood on, have blood be sprinkled on them in order to purify them and to, to sanct- I guess you could say to sanctify them, but also to confirm the covenant that he was making with them as being binding, as being something that uh, would be impossible for them to, um, to come out of. And so uh, Ex- Exodus 24 talks about this. I'll just read that briefly because it's very helpful for understanding why Peter is, is mentioning the sprinkling with blood metaphor. So in verses 6 through 8, he says, And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. That blood from the sacrifices, sprayed and sprinkled on the people. And again, I know it's a very kind of strange image, but it was meant to purify them, to set them apart. And God's saying, you're purified, you're clean, you belong to me. I have made this covenant with you. Now uphold the covenant. And friends, we celebrate communion every single week. And remember what Jesus said to his disciples and what he says to us every time we celebrate this and we were reminded of it, that Jesus said, this is the covenant of the new, this is the blood of the new covenant in my blood. The blood of Jesus Christ is so 
so important because it was the blood of Christ shed on the, on the cross that is applied to us, that is sprinkled over us, that cleanses us of our sins. And God says that when my blood has been shed for you and you've been purified, you've been washed of your sins, you are able to enter into my presence. You are able to have access to the holy of holies. Ephesians chapter 2, 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And then significantly in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by, by the blood of Jesus. It is the blood of Jesus which sanctifies us. It is the blood of Jesus with, which cleanses us. And it is the blood of Jesus which enables us to be able to go into the holy of holies. To be able to have access to God. To be able to pray to God and to be in his transforming presence. To be able to behold the glory of our God. Jesus came into this world, offered up his life as a sacrifice for us that we could be brought into his family and have access to God. So we are invited into both obedience, but also sprinkling. We don't obey in order to be purified, but rather we are simultaneously cleansed through the blood of Christ, his sacrifice, and invited into obedience. That obedience makes us holy, makes us look different in order that our lives can be missional and point the world to the glory of God. And so I pray for all of us that we would remember that we are elect as exiles. We don't belong here. We are here, but we belong somewhere else. We have been chosen by the foreknowledge of God that there's a purpose for your life. There's a, pur a purpose even in the midst of your suffering. We've been sanctified by His Spirit. We've been set apart. We've been called out of the world, but we're in the world. And we have a mission and a purpose that even in the midst of our suffering, that we can bear witness to the glory of God. And so my hope and prayer is that for us in the coming weeks, that we would sense and understand even more the incredible calling that God has given over each of our lives and the purpose to which He has called us for. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for opening a way into your holy presence by sending your Son, Jesus, to shed his blood for us. The blood purifies us and gives us access into your presence. Lord, you are absolutely holy, and you too call us to be holy. Lord, may we not lose our courage in the midst of our suffering, but put our faith and trust completely in you. Lead us in the way of Jesus for obedience to his teaching, that you may be honored and glorified in our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray together. Amen.